Well, last week, Chris Campbell kicked off our Christmas series, and I thought he did a great job, didn't you? Matter of fact, I was so impressed at his ability to memorize the genealogies, I thought we'd just put him to the test and make him do it all over again this morning. Impressive work there, Chris. I, uh, I always try to surround myself with people who are smarter than I am. That's the dude right there. Um, I was taught by one of my seminary professors, when you get into these names that you can't pronounce, say them fast and say them with confidence. Nobody will ever know if you've got it right or not. But uh, you got them right, Brother Chris. But more than simply the, the ability of memorizing Scripture, which I appreciated so much. Chris, I thought you did a, a masterful job at helping us understand the covenants and the promises of God. And I will say this loudly and I'll say it publicly that I am thankful for men like Chris Campbell and Chris Kinney and others in our church who can handle the Word of God and teach it truthfully and honestly. God bless you, brother. Appreciate your, your help to us. We were out of town last week and we're back. Guess the, figured that out, didn't you? Um, today I want to continue in Matthew. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 1 and 2 through the rest of the year. And today we pick it up in verse 18, and we're talking about the love story, that last week it was the story of, of promise, today it's the story of love. And I can tell you that this Christmas story is a, uh, it's the ultimate definition of love as you dive into it here in Matthew chapter 1. You know, one of the hard things for, for preachers is Christmas and Easter, because these two topics come around every year, and we come back to the same passages, and we're going, so how, what, what am I going to say new this year? Now, I'm of the benefit. I haven't been here before, so I'm just acting like you all have never heard any of this, all right? But literally this week, as I was studying and teaching and preparing, the Lord just really helped me see something new and afresh that I've been so excited to get here today. While this is a familiar story, I want you to see today it's, it's two love stories woven together. It's not just the love story of Mary and Joseph. There's two stories here that God meshes in such a way that teaches us that the love of God is relentless, that there is no end, there's no backup on it, I was reading again this week from David Platt who made this statement. And it's such a great statement. I think it's on your handout in the screen beside me. It says, the virgin birth is the most extraordinary miracle in the whole Bible. And it's the most remarkable mystery in the whole world. What a great statement, right? We have no greater miracle really than this virgin birth. Because without the virgin birth, you don't have the great miracle of the resurrection of Christ. So you got to have this first miracle, which is maybe the greatest of all of Scripture, but it is one of the greatest mysteries in all the world as to how this comes about. How does this happen that a virgin is going to give birth? And lucky for us, the Scripture tells us. So take your Bibles, find Matthew 1, look at verse 18. Let me read down to 25. You can follow along with me, then we'll come back and unpack a few truths today. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and 
not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will give birth to a son, and you are to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which is being translated, God is with us. Now when, Jesus, when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her, but he did not have sexual relations with her until she had given birth to a son, and he named, his, and he named him Jesus. What an incredible little story. My mom used to teach on this passage on, her, on just about annually. And she could tell the love story of Mary and Joseph in such a sweet and a special and a kind way. And I hope today that you'll see this new and afresh. Let me give you a couple of things as we go down through here before we hit a point of application. When you look at this story, this promise and this story of love, I want you to see that the incarnation of Jesus displays the love of God. Point number one, the incarnation of Jesus displays the love of God. Now, I want you to go back to chapter, chapter verse 18, rather, and just look at the very first phrase of that verse. The birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. Stop right there. The birth of Jesus Christ, circle that, just those three words, the birth of Jesus Christ, four words, birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. Way. Now understand, Jesus Christ, Christ is not his last name, okay? Jesus, the name of God, the Son of God, Christ, the long-awaited Messiah. But when it says the birth of Jesus Christ, understand, this is the birth of God taking on human form. This is God tabernacle or living among us. This is Emmanueling God with us. Now, you think that's good and that's important. If you've been in church, you've heard this, this doctrinal truth for years and years and years about the incarnation. But I want it to fall fresh on us today that God in heaven, who needed nothing, who required nothing, who was missing nothing, chose to send his son to leave the thrones and the glories and the portals of heaven to take on humanity to live among us. Now think about it. You and I have taken on humanity, right? That's all we've got. Would you agree with me that life is hard sometimes? There is physical, there's a mental, there's emotional, there is spiritual battles that take place in our life. And I don't know about you, but they take place daily. This morning, I'm in my office, and I'm studying, and I'm preparing, and I'm having to say, Satan, get behind me. Satan, leave me alone this morning. Stop trying to distract me, to take me another way. Is anybody else in the room that way? This is the real stuff. But the good news that the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way, that when Jesus was born of a virgin and came to this earth, he took on humanity and he retained his divinity. 
100% God and 100% man all at the same time. You go, Pastor, try to explain that. I don't have to. Because Scripture says this is the way it happened. Scripture says that God draw, drew near to us. And when Jesus took on his humanity, he possesses the full characteristics of our humanness. He had a physical body. He, he was as live as we are physically and mentally and emotionally and visibly. People saw him and touched him. Matter of fact, he had Mary and Joseph and other brothers and he grew up in this little town of Nazareth and he was a, the son of a carpenter. And when he was 30 years old and started to do these miracles, people would go, where did he come from? We've known him since he was a baby. We went to school with him. We interacted with him. He had a visibility to everybody around him. He took on his humanity. Why? Why would God in heaven do that? Well, you go over to Philippians chapter 2, one of my favorite passages of all of Scripture. And you, if you read chapters, chapter 2, verses 5, down through verse 11 or 12, you'll see the reason why he did this. He, being God, did not grasp it to be held on to. But he humbled himself to the point of a cross. Even death on a cross, the scripture would go on to say. See, he took on humanity so that he could fully, so that he could fully identify with you and I. Aren't you glad we have a God in heaven that identifies with us? Talk to me, church. Who knows us. Who understands us. It's an amazing thing. Can I tell you this morning? He's familiar with your struggles. Do you hear that? He's familiar with your struggles. He's acquainted with sorrow and suffering. He's not one that is far away and distant. No, he, he drew near to us. And we think what good, good news it is that, that God in heaven would take on humanity and dwell among us and be able to relate to us and be able to experience what we experience and to be able to understand the frustrations and the heartaches and the hurt and the sorrows and all of those things. But here's what the good news is. Not that he just took on humanity. It's really important to me that he did that, but it's more important to me that he retained his divinity. Because if he had only took on his humanity, then he would be like us, undone and without hope and without help. But by retaining his divinity, he kept all of those divine characteristics. So Jesus Christ had power over all disease. He had command over all of nature. He had authority over all sin and he had control over death. That's good stuff right there. This is the Savior that we worship here in Matthew chapter 1. And when you look at how the divinity and the humanity marries together, you will see that there's a baby that's born in a manger, yet he sustains the power of the universe all at the same time. Jesus, being physical, becomes tired. Oftentimes the scripture would say that he would retreat away. He went down to the bottom of the boat and he rested. And here the humanity of Jesus can grow weary, and yet the divinity of Jesus is omnipotent. All power and all strength. 
You go, oh, but the humanity of Jesus, he died. Humanity of Jesus suffered on a cross. They buried him in a tomb. Yeah, but the divinity of Jesus resurrected from the grave. The humanity of Jesus returned to heaven in a physical body. Thomas could touch the wounds in his hands and his side, returned to heaven in a physical form, and he sat down at the right hand of the Father. And the divinity of Christ will one day return back to get you and I and live with us forever. This is why this is so important to us. So when you get to, to Matthew chapter 1 and that little phrase at the first part of verse 18, but the birth of Jesus Christ came about in this way, you'll understand Galatians chapter 4. That when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. Why? So that we might receive adoption as sons. I got to tell you this. I think I've already taught this to you one time, but it's worth repeating. In Jewish culture, the reason why this would have been so important to them, that Jewish culture understood humanity this way. That if you had a son or a daughter that, that was your physical child, your birthright, but they disobeyed you, they abandoned your values, your principles, they went off another way. According to Jewish custom, you as a father could disown that child. Even though they were your physical blood relative, you could disown them. Notice in Galatians, it says that the Son of God came so that we might receive what? What's the word? What's the word? Adoption. And here's what's so beautiful about this. Everyone would have understood it at the time of this writing. In Jewish culture, the adoption was more permanent than the physical birth. Because when the father adopted the child, it became permanent and never able to be revoked. Never able to be rescinded. So when you became adopted into a family, you were sealed and secured. When little Braxton came up here today and I was talking to him about his salvation decision last night, I put my keys in my center of my hand and I only do this, this with kids that I know I can, I can outstrength, okay? <laughs> I, I've, never mind. I did it this way and I told Braxton, I said, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to get those keys out of my hand. And that little guy nearly stood on top of his head trying to get, get those keys. And finally he said, I can't do it. And I said, neither can anybody else. When God puts you in the center of his care, nothing can take you away. Amen. You are adopted in such a way that nothing can remove that. Now here's a great teaching on this. Do you remember when Christ was on the cross? And one of the seven sayings was, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reason why Christ was crucified was blasphemy, that he said that he was the son of God. Now remember Jewish custom, only the biological father could disown the biological son. So when Jesus was on a cross and he cried, my God, my Papa, my Papa, why have you forsaken me? He was declaring, I am the biological son of the most high and the most high is my father. So the father rejected the son on the cross on our behalf. 
But when, Jane, when Galatians 4 happens and we are adopted as the sons and daughters of God, we are forever sealed and never can be rejected and never can be disowned. And heaven is our home and eternity is secure. And that's the promise of the scripture. And that's why the incarnation of Christ puts the great display of the love of God before you and I and this world so we can know it, so that we can understand it, and we can see experience. How good is that? You are adopted today, which means you are secure and safe if you've trusted him as your savior. Well, here's the second point I want you to grab a hold of today. The love story of Mary and Joseph, it not only display, the incarnation displays the love of God, but this story reflects the love story of God and us. So the story of Mary and Joseph reflects the story of God and us. Now catch this. You get this young teenage girl, we're, we're thinking somewhere around the age of 16, who is engaged, and that word engaged really means married to Joseph. Now, it's an arranged marriage. That was the culture of the day. They've made a promise to each other, which is a covenant. Just like our, our marriages here, they've come together, they've made a, a covenant before God to each other. So in, these, in this culture, engagement was significant. It was binding. It wasn't as we would see it today where you could just break off the engagement. To break off the engagement in this culture would have required a divorce. The different part of this, this situation is when a couple was engaged, when they had made the covenant, then they lived separately for a year. Why a year? Why did they never come together physically for a year? Because it was to guarantee faithfulness and purity in the marriage. That the, the covenant was going to be honored. That the covenant to keep myself only to thee would be significant and would be promised and would be secured and would be guaranteed. And then after one year of this engagement, the groom would come into town. And there would be a great party and a, a great celebration as this groom progressed and this grand procession up to his engaged house. And he would pick her up and off they would go to live happily ever after as he took her back to his house and they lived together as a married couple. Sounds great, doesn't it? This is fantastic. Everything is working splendidly. The plan has really come together. Joseph found his girl. Mary found his, her guy. They're deeply in love. They've made a covenant together. They've been faithful. They've kept it pure. And then Mary comes up to Joseph one day and goes, hey, can I talk to you? <laughs> sure, babe. What, what you got? Well got a little bit of news. I'm pregnant. Think about that. The dream is gone, isn't it? Everything is blown up. And you and I are sitting here reading the story and going, Joseph, it's okay. It's a virgin birth. We know how this works. Listen, this may be familiar to you and I, but it was absolutely unheard of to Joseph. This was brand new information to this guy. And when you get into chapter, into verse 19, it says her husband, notice the word husband, 
Joseph being a righteous man. Circle or underline that. He was a righteous man. What he said, he meant. What he committed to, he kept. Joseph lived to a high standard. He honored the law. He kept everything that the Lord had commanded him to do. And by the law, the one that he kept, the law gave him permission to divorce Mary. Matter of fact, to call her to a public disgrace because she had obviously broken the marriage vow. I mean, if she's pregnant, that seems to be pretty obvious to him that she did not keep herself only to him. She did not keep herself pure and she has dishonored the marriage vow and now she is a pregnant, unmarried girl who's not yet consummated the marriage. But I want you to see this. Joseph, not only in verse 19, is he a righteous man, he's also a compassionate man. Because he says, not wanting to disgrace her publicly, he decided to divorce her secretly. So instead of exposing her publicly, he divorces her privately. And you've got to understand the, the dichotomy here. Joseph, a righteous man, and now it looks like she, an assumed sinner, right? Joseph, keeping the law, and by all appearances and by all reasoning, she must not have. And now he goes, I have to turn, watch this, catch this. Because she broke the covenant. Remember last week? The covenants, the promises. Because she broke the covenant, Joseph goes, now I have to turn my back on her. Now I have to abandon her. He knows that he can't be associated with her because of her sinfulness. So he decides to just set her aside privately. He decides to, to say, I love Mary, but I can't maintain a public relationship with her. And the story goes on. It says that after he considered these things, I'm in verse 20, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid to take Mary, your wife, as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Now, can't you imagine that conversation? The angel shows up and goes, hey, Joseph, I got really good news. I can explain all this to you. He goes, wish somebody would. Somebody, please explain this. And the angel goes, it's easy. The child Mary's carrying, it's conceived by the Holy Spirit. Thanks. <laughs> Clears it right up, right? Makes everything perfect now. Here's this far-reaching story. Joseph, I love you, but I'm pregnant, but I've not been unfaithful. This is of the Holy Spirit. Right. Joseph, I wake you up in the middle of a dream, and the angel goes, hey, Joseph, she's telling you the truth. Right. Don't be afraid to take her as your wife, because the child she's carrying is of the Holy Spirit. And here's what I love about this cat. Here's what I like about this guy so much. is because when you jump down to verses 24 and 25, it says, when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's, Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her. Now, he didn't have sexual relations until she had given birth to a son. 
and named him Jesus. Point number three, I want you to see this. The love of God compels obedience. If the love of God is displayed in the incarnation of Christ, and if the love of God is reflected in these two love stories, I'm going to come back and unpack that further in just a second. I want you to see if God really loves you, and if you really love God, you will be compelled to obey him even when it doesn't make sense. Do you hear me this morning? Even when it doesn't make sense. Anybody in the room ever been wronged? Someone done something against you? Anybody? Two of us? Have you forgiven them? Well, not my job. They got to come to me. No. Who forgave first? Christ forgave first. Who forgave completely? Christ forgave completely. That's where we need to go. Folks, we can extrapolate that all the way down through the long list of things, but you get it well enough to understand this. That the love of God, when it has impacted your life, when it has intersected in your life, it will compel you to obey Him. Why? Because it takes you back to verse 21, which is the kicker of the passage. Verse 21 is where, where it gets so the sweet spot of the story. Because it says in verse 21, she will give birth to a son and you are to name him Jesus because it and underline it, he will save his people from their sin. Joseph is going, I, I know a sinner. <laughs> I'm engaged to her. The spirit of God is going, the baby that is inside her will rescue her from the things that she's being accused of. And the first love story of Mary and Joseph intersects with the greatest love story. Last week, Chris so well talked to us about the promises, the covenants of, of God making a promise to us and keeping them and us needing to do the same thing. How God gathered himself a people and made a covenant with them. But do you remember the story? Do you know your story? God's made a covenant and the people that he loved, Israel, the people that he loved, you and I, violated the covenant arrangement. You broke the covenant. The people that God loved, Israel and you and I, rejected God. They worshiped lesser idols Lesser gods, other idols. They loved autonomously, meaning I can do this on my own and my way and the way I want to. The people that God loved became self-absorbed and started to pursue their own interest. Matter of fact, the, the prophet Jeremiah says it this way. I said how I would set you among my sons and give you pleasant land, a heritage most beautiful of all nations. And I thought you would call me my father and you would turn from from following turn and you would not turn from following me and surely as a treacherous wife leaves her husband so have you been treacherous to me o house of israel declares the lord and all throughout the old testament god paints the picture of he being the husband and israel being the wife and israel breaks the command breaks the covenant over and over and over again, much like an adulterous relationship in a marriage. Folks, 
for you and I today. Sin is simply turning our back on our first love. Turning our back on the one that loves us most and loves us best and pursuing materialism. Lying and cheating and gambling and gossip and pride and pornography and the list goes on and on. And all of these things, you can put them in one basket and simply say, these are the things that I love more than God. So who's bold enough in the room today to go, I love money more than God. Anybody in the room? Let's just do this. Ready? I'd be bold today. Who in the room will stand up and go, I love an adulterous relationship before more than I love God? Anybody? You're going, you crazy? I'm in church. I can't do that in church. Then why do it out there? Why do I sell our soul off to something less out there? Why do we say, oh, yes, I love God and he loves me. Oh, yes, I'm in a relationship with God. I've given my life to him. I'm in a covenant relationship with him. And then we go and we break the covenant. This is where the love stories intersect. And sin, sin is a love, it's in a love affair with the stuff of this world that we value more the one than the one that gives us life. Happens in the New Testament too. Don't think this is an Old Testament thing. Don't think this is just an Israel thing. James says, you are an adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Wow. How about that for a heavy verse? Did you hear what he just said? That when we attach ourselves to the things of the world more than to God, we become an adulterous people. Blows my mind. That's why verse 21 is such an important verse. Because go back to it again. Look at the verse again. She will give birth to a son. You are to name him, him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. Say it with me. Because he will save his people from their sins. Say it again. Because he will save his people from their sins. And I think all too often we see the death of Christ on a cross as the picture of the love of God. But I will tell you this morning that the birth of Christ in a manger is also the picture of the love of God. And God being fully God retains his divinity and takes on his humanity to be born of a virgin so that you and I could be called the adopted sons and daughters of God. So how does this work? Two things. Just two simple points on the back of your handout. And I want you to see this morning that the love of God pursues you. It pursues you. I'm parked behind you. You can't go anywhere. Let me tell you a quick story. Um, <laughs> I, Sue and I were in college together. We were both on, on some ministry teams at Liberty. And Myself and another guy were going to take 88 college students on a spring break mission trip. Okay, She was one of those college students. Now, she, she was dating my partner, the guy that I was leading the mission, mission trip with. She wasn't just engaged, dating him. She was almost engaged to the dude. And... Uh, 
World Trade Centers, we're still in New York City at the time, and that's where we were, and we were going to be in New York City for seven days, and we were going to split the group, and half of us were going to go to Washington, D.C., and half of us were going to Canada. So we've got the whole team, all 88 of us, we're on top of the World Trade Center, and we're looking out over the city, and as I'm, I'm gazing the landscape of the city, my eye catches her, and I went, ooh, la, la. You know what ooh, la, la means. And then I thought, wait a minute, that's Dan's girl. And I went, ooh la la. <laughs> so she and I started to talk on top of the World Trade Center. And uh, I was smitten. So at the end of our seven days in New York City, I go to my buddy Dan. And I go, hey, I, I, I think the Lord has called us to make a decision. I said, why, why don't you take the team that I was going to take to Canada, and I'll take your team, we'll switch. Now, the reason for that was because she was supposed to go to Washington, D.C. So I figured if I could take her with me to Canada, I could figure out if there was anything here. We have a 24-hour bus ride back. Dan and I are sitting in our office a couple weeks later, and he goes, you know what, Sue and I just aren't getting along anymore. Well, darn and I went, that's easy, because she belongs with me and not with you. <laughs> and I stole her. Is that awful? No, it's not. Here's what I did. I, I rescued her from marrying an overweight, bald guy. <laughs> no, I fell in love, and I pursued this girl as God would have it. Folks, God pursues us. I want you to hear, remember the incarnation being so important, the humanity and the divinity? The divinity of God says, go rescue my people for, from sin. The human response would have said, put her away. God goes, no, I love you and I'll make a way for you. He pursues us, aren't you glad? And the last thing, and I just love this. The love of God stoops. S-T-O-O-P-S. He pursues and he stoops. Look at verses 23 and, uh, 22 and 23. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son. And they will call his name Emmanuel. Which means God with us. The love of God today doesn't just reach towards you. It reaches down after you. Do you remember the story of the woman that was caught in adultery and the scribes and the Pharisees brought her into the city and they circled her and they were about to stone her and they all had the stones in their hand and Jesus walks into the middle of the circle, doesn't he? Do you remember what he does? He writes in the sand, doesn't he? Well, how do you do that? You got to stoop. You got to come down. And Brother John, as sure as he came down, he made eye contact. He's no longer looking down upon her, he's no longer reigning as if 
greater than her, although he was. The love of God stoops. He goes, hey, Gil, I see you. I see you. Far away, broken covenant. But I see you. And you know what he does when he stoops? He lifts you up. He lifts you up. What a love story. What a love story. So what do you do with all that today? Just write this down at the bottom of your handout, somewhere on your paper. Write it on your hand, I don't care. Write it down, two words. Stop running. Stop running away. Stop having affairs with other stuff. Stop letting other things be the love of your life rather than God. Stop cohabitating with sin. Recognize that he's offered us forgiveness and all you have to do is stop running. I close with this. The Lord went to one of his guys, Hosea, prophet in the Old Testament, and he says, hey, Hosea, I got an idea. Let's, um, let's show the nation of Israel a, um, a demonstration of how much I love them. And Hosea, being the preacher, goes, oh, that's a wonderful idea. Let, let's show the nation of Israel how much you love them. And God goes, great, glad you're on board. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to go marry a prostitute. And her name's going to be Gomer. And she's going to marry you, but she's going to maintain her prostitute lifestyle. But I want you to maintain a covenant relationship with her. You keep yourself pure. You keep yourself honest. You keep yourself faithful, even though she's going to be everything but that. And can't you imagine the response of Hosea? Really? A prostitute? Named Gomer? Try to pass that by the, search, the pastor search committee. Me and my wife named Gomer would like to be your, your next pastor. But don't worry about her. She's a prostitute. But that's okay. I love her anyway. Was she still practicing prostitution? Oh, yes. Yes, regularly. Great. Why? Because Hosea chapter 2 verses 14 and 16 say this, Therefore, I'm going to persuade her and I'm going to lead her to the wilderness and I'm going to speak tenderly to her. Did you hear that? I'll speak tenderly. Come unto me. He says, There I will give her vineyards back to her and make the valley of Achor into a gateway of hope. And there she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, in the days she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, this is the Lord's direction. She will call me husband. Stop running. Let the love of God pursue you. And let the love of God stoop towards you. Stop committing adultery 
with the things of the world and come back to the Lord and go, I'm yours, Lord. Everything I am and everything I'm not, I'm yours. Make sense today? Hard one, wasn't it? You go, man, I was looking for an easy Christmas message. Amen. It is easy. I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. You got it? Who's a sinner in the room today that needs a Savior? I'm wondering who's found a Savior. Anybody in the room found a Savior? Will you celebrate him for such a thing? Will you tell someone about the good news that you found? Lord, today, would you just wash over us? Help us to find that place of repentance, of turning away from sin and self and trusting you and you only. Help us to abandon the selfish and adulterous ways of just loving life more than the one who gives us life. God, today, would you do a divine work, a spiritual work, a total and complete work among us. Thank you that you never break your covenant, that your promises are always true. Thank you that your love has no end and it's everlasting. It is, it is without the ability to be, ever be less than what we need. Now, Father, today, would you allow our covenant to you, our promise to you, our faithfulness to you to be strengthened by your grace and mercy, to be quickened by our love for you. And at the end of the day, may we hear, well done. Well done. Come on in. These are the things we long for. And may the world around us know to whom we've given our heart to whom we are devoted, and about the one that loves us most and loves us best. In Jesus' name, amen.